Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to our text of these last couple of weeks, three weeks now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are looking at verses 16 to 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21 in your Bibles. Would you say this together with me? Far, far better things to do than we have ever done. Would you say that? Far, far better things to do than we have ever done. One more time. Far, far better things to do than we have ever done. If you're a Charles Dickens fan, you will remember that line, and uh, I will uh, just unpack that a little more in a few moments. Let's read this passage together. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 to 21. From this moment on, therefore, Paul writes, we don't regard anybody from merely a human point of view. That right there is huge. What would happen if we stopped regarding one another from a human point of view alone and began regarding each other Uh, from our greater identity, which is as the beloved of God, as kingdom citizens. I wonder what would happen if we regarded each other from that regard first. Uh, Not to the neglect of, of being human, because we are human, but just a thought there. Even if we once regarded the Messiah that way, we don't do so any longer. Thus, if anyone is in the Messiah, they are a new creation, or there is a new creation. Turn to the person beside you and say to them, if you're in Messiah, you're a new creation. Go ahead, tell them that. You're in your bubble there where you're seated. In Messiah, new creation. Old things have gone, and look, everything has become new. Verse 18, it all comes from God. He reconciled us to Himself through the Messiah, and He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, we have been given a vocation, a calling from God to be people that proclaim the astonishing, boundless, reconciling love of God in Christ Jesus Messiah to the world. That is our primary vocation even above the vocation that you may have currently in the education world, in the world of industry and business, in the world of uh, trades or the arts, whatever, whatever sphere you are active in day to day, child care, teaching, whatever it may be, that, of course, is a vocational sphere that God has placed you in But within that, you have a greater vocation, and that is to be an ambassador of the king, an ambassador of his kingdom, an agent of reconciliation to the world, proclaiming the astonishing, boundless love of God. 
This is how it came about. Verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah, not counting their transgressions against them, and entrusting us, there it is, with the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors speaking on behalf of the Messiah as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore people on the Messiah's behalf to be reconciled to God. The Messiah did not know sin, but God made him to be sin on our behalf. What an incredible mystery here in these words. So that in him we might embody God's faithfulness to the covenant. Far, far better things to do than we have ever done. Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, perhaps for you, I know it was for me and for uh, perhaps a number of us in the room, it was an English class textbook for many of us during our secondary school education days. It is an 1859 historical novel, and it's set in London and Paris before enduring the French Revolution. The novel tells the story of the French doctor Manette, his 18-year-long imprisonment in the Bastille in Paris, and his release to live in London with his daughter, Lucy whom he had never met. The story is set against the conditions that led up to the French Revolution, and in particular, the reign of terror, as it was called, the period of the revolution when a series of massacres and numerous public executions took place. The novel has been adapted, as you may know, for film, for television, for radio, and for the theatrical stage. And it has continued to have an influence, even to this day, on popular culture. Dickens opens the novel with a sentence that has become famous and still speaks prophetically into our culture and even these current days that we have been living through. You may be familiar with these words, maybe not knowing where they originated from, or maybe it will all come back to you as I read them. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. Sounds very much like these days we're living in, doesn't it? It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short... The period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received 
for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison alone. What a descriptive this is of our days, even. And how, as I said, it still speaks prophetically into the days that you and I are currently living through now. In the climax of the book, the squandering scoundrel, Sidney Carton, who has messed up his own life and the lives of many others, he suddenly glimpses a chance to do something heroic with his messed up life. He himself is smitten with love for Lucy Minette. But she has her heart, if you remember the story, set on marrying Charles Darnay. And Darnay is going to the guillotine. It is a far, far better thing that I do now, ponders Sidney Carton, than I have ever done. He changes places with Darnay. And down comes the horrid blade, and Sidney Carton dies a hero. In Dickens, England, he was playing to a Victorian gallery, well familiar with the story of Jesus dying in the place of a sinner. Of course, King Jesus was certainly not Sidney Carton. He was the sinless one, dying for sinners and scoundrels, very much unlike the messed up Sidney Carton dying in the place of a good man. But this is the overarching biblical theme of substitution that we've been studying and reflecting on in these last few weeks. And it is what sets Christ Jesus distinctly apart from all other world religion faith figures. The Messiah taking Israel's fate upon himself to enable others to escape if they would do so, and thereby to launch the new decisive phase of God's plan. But this then is played out in numerous smaller scenes in the Gospels. The woman with the issue of blood touches Jesus. He therefore becomes technically unclean according to religious law, but somehow it works the other way and the woman is healed and cleansed. So we see these small cameos of the substitutionary work of Jesus in these smaller stories. That story is in Mark chapter 5. Jesus touches the leper in another story in Mark chapter 1. Or the young man's corpse at Nain in Luke chapter 7. Same problem, same result. You can look at these stories yourselves. Likewise, Jesus shares celebratory meals with the outcasts and the unclean of all people. He has gone to eat, they say, with a sinner. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? He has gone to eat with a sinner. 
But Jesus comes out after sharing lunch with Zacchaeus and declares, Luke chapter 19, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus, Messiah, is a friend of sinners. I am so grateful for that. That is one of my favorite names of Jesus right there. Friend of sinners. Do you know why? Because that means he's my friend. He's your friend. Only once we see and embrace what is going on here throughout the biblical story, the biblical narrative, the stories of the Gospels, only once we see and embrace what's going on can we truly live the passion of the cross in these days. We must ourselves live in the story to see and feel for ourselves the ways and, and in which the whole narrative is saying He bore our infirmities. He was wounded for our transgressions. With His stripes, we are healed. The ultimate healing on the cross is anticipated as Matthew in particular sees throughout his Gospel. So the end of that long narrative road of the Gospels occurs when the plundering bandit Barabbas is set free and Jesus dies quite literally in his place. The earlier sneer from the religious leaders, he's gone in to eat with a sinner, turns now into a curse. He's gone out to die with a criminal. But that is the point. Jesus, like the serpent on the pole in the book of Numbers, is embodying in Himself the failure of Israel to be the light of the world. He is numbered with the transgressors. The theme of the innocent in place of the guilty is there throughout the entire story. It's not superimposed onto it. Jesus is accused at the start of Luke chapter 23 of crimes of which Luke's readers know right well that he is innocent of. Well, others are guilty. By the end of Luke 23, the bandit on the cross next to Jesus has in fact said exactly that. The centurion in Luke's Gospel account declares that Jesus is innocent. The centurion, a representative of the Roman rule, Jesus is innocent. In Mark's Gospel, the centurion says that He is really God's Son. So too, as with Paul in his writing, Romans 3, we looked at Romans a little bit last week, the temple theme that we see there, which is prominent 
also in all four of the Gospels. The temple theme comes out in the Gospel accounts strongly. You who would destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. However, by now, the reader should know, and we need to be taught this, that it is because Messiah Jesus is indeed the temple builder Himself that He must stay on the cross and not save Himself. He is taking upon Himself the weight of the world's wickedness to exhaust it and to let evil do its work and give back in return nothing but forgiveness. To hang there as the incarnate, enfleshed, human presence of the loving God in the waste and the filth of our wraths and our sorrows. So victory then comes through His substitution. It isn't either or. This is the teaching of the New Testament stitched tightly into the fabric of the four Gospel accounts. Offering numerous pictures. Numerous personal stories. Moments which we can latch onto. Like the ones I mentioned a few moments ago. The the woman with the the, the issue of blood, the Zacchaeus, the leper, the, the, the young son of, of, the, of the widow of Nain that had died. All of these stories. Little smaller pictures of this great substitutionary work that Jesus was carrying out. All bringing us, as it lurches forward, bringing us to its terrible climax. Jesus dies, embodying God's justice, crushed by injustice, incarnating God's love, rejected by human hatred, God's freedom, dying the death of a slave, God's beauty defaced, marred beyond imagination, God's truth in the world of lies. God's power in human weakness. God's presence in the paradox of apparent God-forsakenness. So it is that Jesus establishes what the Scriptures had promised. The living God coming back at last to dwell in the midst of His people and to reveal His innermost character as the God of utter and absolute self-giving love. The God of covenant faithfulness. He has made a covenant with humankind through His people Israel. He has made a covenant with us and He does not forsake His covenant. We need to personally walk through and enter into the scenes of the Last Supper. I discovered the rich truth of this um, 
a number of years ago, I was uh, taking part in a personal spiritual retreat at uh, an Ignatian, a, a, a retreat center founded after St. Ignatius in church history. It was an Ignatian retreat center in Guelph, Ontario. And a colleague of mine had gifted this to me. He said, you need this. Um, he knew I had been going through a particularly difficult season in my own life and ministry. And so he gifted this one-week retreat to me, fully paid expenses. It was a silent retreat. I didn't talk to anyone for a week except God. And there were other retreatants there. But it, the, 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 the rule was is that it was silent. So you didn't talk to anyone else. It was to still yourself before the Lord. The only human being that I spoke to throughout the day was my spiritual director who I would meet with once a day. And she was a saintly woman of God. And she began to lead me. She would give me passages of Scripture and she would say to me, now, what we've learned historically in church history from St. Ignatius is to engage with the text. Enter into it. Put yourself into the story. And this is what we need to do. And it's a, it's a, it's a powerful spiritual exercise for us to develop as a habit. As we personally walk through, for instance, and enter into the scenes of the Last Supper. Put yourself there with the rest of the disciples around the table. What is God speaking to you in the midst of that scene in that moment? We need to enter into the foot washing in, in order to inhabit the darkness of Gethsemane. And so better understand then the darkness of our own days. We need to learn how to read the Gospels as what they really are. The Gospels are not simply and merely a collection of fragments of what happened next. But they are the story of how the world's evil, our evil, came rushing together to put Jesus on the cross. of how the powers of evil that still try to enslave us and make us serve their destructive agendas, how they were defeated that day. Though they still like to pose, don't they? And pretend otherwise. And we are often gullibly taken in. The devil is a liar. We need all of us to grasp more completely and fully how all of this works. This great redemptive story of Christ's work of substitution. We need to embrace this great love story into our own lives and day-to-day -day living. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. To the world who needs to know truly 
and clearly who God is, that is the clearest picture. The clearest picture of who He is and the greatness of His love. His, uh, un, his, his unbounding, His astonishing love toward us. The cross of Christ. We need to contemplate and ponder step by step how we ourselves can come to the foot of the cross and to say in awestruck wonder and gratitude, let there be awestruck wonder and gratitude in our lives. May awestruck wonder and gratitude fill our lives that we would come to the foot of the cross and say, He was wounded for our transgressions. And to hear the words of St. Paul, to which Charles Dickens' words on the lips of Sidney Carton are a distant echo. God commands His love for us in that while we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. It was a far, far better thing to do than God had ever done. And the result, which we so much need right now in these days, is not that we look at the cross and simply say, Phew, that's all right then, my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven to be with God. No, 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 no. We're missing the message if, that, if, that's, if that's as far as we go. We're, we're completely missing the point. That isn't where the Gospels place their emphasis to us. Rather, the message of the cross, victory through substitution, means that we are now set free to be fully and genuinely humans. The new way to be human. Easter is so much more than simply a happy ending to the terrible story of Good Friday. No, the cross sets us free as God's image-bearing humans. This is what Paul is scratching at when he says we no longer regard each other merely and only from a human perspective. But we see each other now through the lens of new creation. New creation that has been provided through the work of Christ on the cross and His substitution. We are God's image-bearing humans. And as God's royal priesthood, we have a vocation. We are to be people of worship and witness. To be people of celebration and servanthood to the world. We who have seen all our dreams of justice and freedom and rest land in a heap at the foot of the cross, are now to stand up and re-erect those signposts to be people of justice in a world of injustice. 
To be people of truth in a world of lies. To be people of love and beauty in a world of ugly hatred. To be people of genuine spirituality. Bringing heaven and earth together in a world of of Gnosticism and other counterfeits of religious ideas and systems and secretive elite spiritual knowledge. That's what Gnosticism is. It was something that existed in Paul's day, but it didn't end there. It still finds its form in different ways today. This idea of there being some sort of secret elite knowledge that only some of us can know. And as we know it, we then tap into the greater reality. No, that, that's not the Gospel. The Gospel is greater than that. The Gospel is for whosoever will. Not any of these other ideas and philosophies and and religious concepts that set themselves above the one and true and loving God, Yahweh. We are to be a people of freedom in a world of slavery. A people of the right sort of power. God's not against power. Obviously, He is all-powerful. But He is about the right power. Not manipulative power, not controlling power, not the kind of of political power that we see taking place in some of our our countries around the world. For you, some of your homeland, uh, where that takes place. Some of of our, our brothers and sisters in the room today from Malaysia, you know what I'm talking about. What's going on there and, and how uh, there is coercion and pressure and political manipulation that takes place in order to, 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 to exercise control. That's not the kind of power that God's about. He's about the right kind of power and we as citizens of the kingdom, as His beloved sons and daughters, as His new creation, we are to be about the right kind of power. Not power characterized by those things. The power of healing love in a world of brute force. And ultimately, a people of love itself in a world of suspicion and hatred. The cross is about the outpoured love of God. And the longer we look at it, the more our own love should be kindled in return. You see, the biblical idea of new creation that St. Paul lays out, uh, not only in our text at hand, but if you, if you look, if you read through the greater context of 2 Corinthians chapters 3-5, to all of it has to do with new creation. And as Paul unfolds this for us, we discover that it is about more than just individual and personal new creation. It's more than just an individual and personal concept. It's most certainly that. 
It, but it's so much more than that. So this applies to us as individuals, but it doesn't end there. It has a greater implication and application. So then the new creation life that has occurred in you and in me as individuals, it is a prophetic signpost towards the ultimate new creation when God makes everything, all things new, and God will be in all. Revelation 21, verse 5. The old has passed. Everything has become new. This is not just a matter of us seeing with new eyes, though we do, but more so that we have glimpsed in Messiah Jesus' resurrection the pattern and the paradigm for what God is doing and going to do for the whole of creation. This is why there's still an extraordinary, glorious future hope that we have in Christ. Not the hope that we will uh, someday escape this rubbishly old world and, 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 and go to heaven someday, but rather the biblical Christian hope that God is going to remake the whole creation and raise us from the dead along with that. Resurrection applies to all of creation. But to our great and sad detriment, this has not been taught or preached in our churches for many, many years. So this then is how the cross, victory through substitution, enables us to be the people that truly live the passion of the cross. It isn't about being saved so that we can escape hell and go to heaven. It's about being saved from our sin and all that entails so that we can be heaven on earth people already here and now. Ambassadors of reconciliation, Paul says. We have a vocation. We have a job to do. Ambassadors of reconciliation. Signposts pointing through our lives and living actions to the healing, restoring, redeeming, and recreating presence of God with us in the world. Of course, there's ultimate objectives. We wait for the new heavens and new earth that Revelation talks about coming down And being established among us. If for this life only we have hoped in the Messiah. If for this life only we have hoped in the Messiah. We are all people the most, of all people, the most pitiable. The New Testament doesn't want us to stand around now that we are saved and the people of God. Our job isn't to stand around gazing up into heaven waiting for Jesus to return. We are to be busy about our vocation knowing of His soon return. 
We're not even to be lounging around waiting for the new earth to come that Revelation tells us about. Jesus Messiah takes our sins as our representative substitute so that with victory assured, we can be living prophetic signpost markers for the kingdom here and now and yet to come in its fullness. We give glimpses to people of what that is to look like in the here and now and what it's going to look like in the days to come. How many know our world urgently needs this? And we are the ones called to be the ambassadors of this message to the world. And whenever we think, as we certainly will, that, oh, this is... Pastor David, as I think about all of this, is, this is impossible. How can we possibly do this? And we think that the forces ranged against us are too great or that we ourselves are so messed up that we will never manage to do anything. In those moments, we need, every one of us needs the message of the cross. That the victory has been won. It has been won. That King Jesus did die for our sins and rise again to put the world and ourselves right. And that by His Spirit, new things, creative healing things, can now be done as genuine advance signs of His coming kingdom. Beloved, with our freedom in Christ, with our freedom in Christ that every one of us in this room today who are in Messiah possess, comes great vocational responsibility and purpose. We are ransomed and called to be the royal priesthood. That's not just a fancy title that we're given that we get to flaunt around. That's a job description. It's a vocation. We now have a debt of love and only love can repay it. There are tasks waiting to be done. King Jesus has set us free so that filled with the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit, we can begin them. Tasks of healing. Tasks of justice and reconciliation and hope. Tasks of love and joy and peace that we are to be carrying out both individually and collectively as a congregation, as a community and a family of faith planted here in this Tri-City region. Tasks of love and joy and peace. And so it is we learn the true story through which we are set free for those tasks. Tasks that may perhaps include far, far better things to do than we have ever done. Amen?